These are the commentary notes for week 10, day 3, covering Mark 15, 33 through 39. The, quote, sixth hour represents noon in verse 33. As such, we are not to minimize the miraculous intervention of, quote, the darkness that, quote, fell over the whole land, verse 33. Lane writes, at noon, when the sun was at its zenith, it went into an eclipse and remained darkened for three hours. Luke twenty three forty five tells us the sun light failed. This was a miraculous darkening and a cosmic sign, close quote from Lane. The prophet Amos spoke eschatologically of, quote, the day of the Lord, where the darkness indicated a time of mourning for an only son, Amos 8.10. When the mighty maker bowed his head in suffering, the sun did forbear to shine. In his infancy, a star shone the light, shone to light the way to him, Matthew 2, 1 to 12. And in his death, the star which illumines the earth's solar system failed to give its light. The foreboding darkness of the sky cloaked the faithful death of our Savior. Verse 34 reads, At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This statement is taken, as has been pointed out, from Psalm 22.1. The darkness of the sky illustrated the content of this cry. It is the fourth statement made by Jesus from the cross, but the only one recorded by both Mark and Matthew, Matthew 27.46. Instead of rushing from moment to moment of the cross sufferings of Jesus, we must recognize that the Gospels tell us almost nothing of what happened between noon and 3 p.m. This cry of dereliction is an awful expression of agony and a mighty statement of trust. This is the only time in all four Gospels when Jesus refers to his Father as, quote, God. But here it is uttered twice, my God, my God. An affirmation and a reaffirmation. Every other address from the Son has been expressed to his, quote, Father. Even in the agony of the garden, the Lord Jesus addressed Abba, Mark fourteen thirty six. But at this hour, even when the Son is utterly forsaken, he yet trusts him as his God. The faith of Jesus is the reason he can forgive our faithlessness. Quote, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Second Timothy 2.13 The reason God's people will trust him forever is because his son trusted him at the cross. See Hebrews 2.13 where the son cries out, I will put my trust in him. I and the children whom God has given me. Jesus guarantees that we will trust the Father with his own trust. In truth, Jesus is not only God's only begotten Son, he is also his only forsaken Son. He was forsaken so that you and I would never be. McLeod writes, Jesus is so engaged in a titanic struggle it was, after all, the hour and power of darkness, according to Luke twenty-two fifty-three. The prince of the world was present in all of his force and cunning. Hell was doing all in its power to subdue and destroy the Son of God. Dear ones, meditate deeply on Christ's agonizing sufferings with me. This comes from Donald McLeod's book, Christ Crucified. Now comes a moment of well-nigh unsustainable awfulness. 
Abba is out of reach, not listening. The intimacy is broken, an intimacy that had never been broken before. It was a breach for which nothing could have prepared Jesus. Like Abraham and Isaac going up to Mount Moriah in Genesis 22, father and son had gone up to Calvary together. Throughout his life, Jesus had been assured that he was not alone, but that the father was with him. Even at the cross, his father, like his mother, had been there. But now, at the ninth hour, Abba was not there. And Jesus can only say, Eloi. God is certainly there, but not as Abba. There is no sense of his own divine sonship, no sense of God's love, no sense of the Father's approval. God is not hearing him. He cries, but there is no answer. And God even seems to mock his trust, according to Psalm 22, verse 8. Trouble is near, but there is no one to help. Psalm 22, 11. There are no comfortable scriptures to fill his mind, nor any assurance of ultimate victory, nor any vision of a redeemed multitude too great to count. At every other time of crisis, Abba had spoken great words of encouragement. This is my son whom I love, Mark 1, 11, Mark 9, 7. How he needed these words now, but no such words came. He hears only the derision of the spectators, the curses of the soldiers, and the whispers of the prince of darkness. He is on his own. Close quote. The bystanders did not understand his cry and, quote, began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah, verse 35. According to John, it was in response to Jesus' fifth word, I am thirsty, John nineteen twenty eight. that one of the centurion soldiers lifted a sponge of sour wine on a reed for him to drink. This, too, fulfilled a prophecy from Psalm 22, namely verse 18, but not even the gesture of wetting his parched lips could be done without a verbal jab, according to verse 36. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, verse 37. The final scream let out by the Savior was a voluntary release of his earthly life entirely unto his Father's will. See John ten eighteen. Luke tells us that Jesus had been reunited to fellowship with his Father prior to his last breath, transitioning from God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, back to Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Luke 23 says he, cried out with a loud voice. It's the strongest word for Jesus' cry used in all four Gospels. Prior to his death, Jesus exhausted the judgment of our sin that our sins deserved and was reunited into perfect fellowship with his Father as our Redeemer. When he cried out, My God, he was forsaken. When he cried out, Father, into your hands, he was restored. He did not die under the wrath of God. He died back in full fellowship with God, having fully paid the price of our redemption. For this reason, verse 38, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, which we read also in Matthew 27 and Luke 23. The curtain is described in Exodus 26 and Exodus 36, Second Chronicles 3, as, quote, the second veil which separated the holy place from the holy of holies, the significance of this event is eternally rich. For here, our access through Christ into the presence of God is portrayed as accomplished in the death of Jesus. Done. Hebrews 10, 19 and 20 speaks of this gospel reality. Quote, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, 
by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. Let us draw near with confidence. Hebrews 4 says, underscoring this point by expressing that Christ, our great high priest, has given us access into the very presence chamber of God. So also in Hebrews 9, verses 7 and 8 and verse 12, Donald McLeod writes, Each of us is entitled to approach the throne with confidence, and when we approach it, the Son of God sits there before us, our friend at court, casting the luster of his obedience and sacrifice over all who come in his name. Mark fifteen thirty nine reads, When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Close quote. The twin affirmations of Jesus and the one who uttered them and the location at which they are spoken are nothing short of worship inspiring. The centurion, he was a commander of over of, of 100 men, centurion. He was the point man for Rome's execution team in Jerusalem on the Passover day. He was a Roman. He was a Gentile. And like the centurion who approached Jesus in Matthew 8, this Roman soldier also found himself saluting a new king after realizing who Jesus is. To this man, there was something captivating about, quote, the way Jesus breathed his last. Verse 39, seeing the Savior wholly surrendered to his Father, completely resigning to his will and suffering in the stead of others unto his dying breath, was wielded by the Holy Spirit to pierce the centurion's heart before another soldier pierced Jesus's, according to John 19, verse 34. Just as Mark opened his gospel in Mark 1.1, so also here he draws to a close. We hear the declaration that Jesus, truly man, is also, quote, son of God, truly God. Son of God is Mark's load-bearing Christological title, which until this moment has remained unconfessed by any human being in the book. The centurion is the first person in the gospel to confess Jesus as the Son of God. And the confession is evoked by his passion, Christ's passion, his suffering and death on the cross, according to Edwards. Have you stood by faith where this centurion stood in time? And before the foot of the cross, have you confessed Jesus Truly is the Son of God. You can see on page 222 a chart of the seven sayings uttered by the Lord Jesus while he was suffering on the cross. This concludes the notes for week 10, day 3.